Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Bulwark's Next Level Podcast. I'm Tim Miller. I'm here with my best friend, Jonathan V. Last, and someone that I aspire to be friends with, uh, Billy Corbin, uh, who is the famed documentarian of the second best ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, The You, in addition to uh, Cocaine Cowboys and now out uh, this week, uh, God forbid, a documentary about the Falwell cuckoldery. Uh, Billy, how was that intro? I'm I, I'm remiss to to start the interview with me asking the host a question, but what is the? But you've <laughs> laid it out there. I mean, you set it up for me. So, what is the uh-huh. first best ESPN thirty for thirty? Uh, the first best was was Once Brothers. It was the documentary about the uh, Yugoslavian uh, basketball players and how they all got broken up uh, under you know Drazen Petrovic and Vladi Divac and all that, and they go they go back to serbia it's so good it's about the serbia croatia fight between these basketball players um who were once on the same team and come to america it's so good if you haven't watched once brothers it's real it's i mean it's not your fault that that was just amazing the u is unbelievable the u is an awesome documentary i am partial to the two escobars because cocaine so Mm. yeah I do like cocaine-related documentaries, too. JVL, do you have a favorite, 30 for 30? <laughs> no. You I don't? Uh, I do not. I, I, uh, the, the one about Iverson, right? This is because I'm, I'm an Iverson guy. So there was a 30 for 30 about Iverson that was great. Okay, Billy, I want to start here. I just, I, I just, we need a little bit of a, a just a, a note at the top of the podcast, if you don't mind. Uh, it's a personal item of personal privilege. Um, but I just want everybody to, listening to know that even though – there will be some jokes about cuckoldery, I think, over the next half hour. This is not a podcast that kink shames. If you are listening or watching on YouTube and you want to have the pool boy lay the pipe to your spouse, God bless you. I don't know if what JVL thinks about that, but at least from my standpoint, I just want to get that out there. The problem for me arises, the mockery arises when you are masturbating in the corner while also trying to bring about a uh, Christo-nationalist authoritarian regime. That is, to me, you know, the the issue at hand. So uh, do we have any objections to that little that little preview that will allow us to make fun of Jerry Falwell Jr. in, in good spirit? You have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, Christo-fascism seems to be a good, good line in the sand. <laughs> okay. Um, give us the background. How'd you, I I mean, it's, you know, you're just watching the preview of this documentary and it's like, oh my God, like, how did you get the pool boy? You know, why is everybody willing to participate in this? Like, you know, tell us how you got to the documentary. So the documentary came to me. It's one of those uh, stories. First, our office is in Miami beach. It is eight blocks away from the piece of property that becomes kind of a centerpiece in this scandal because without this shady real estate transaction and a dispute over it amongst this very Miami kind of like Elmore Leonard, Carl Hyacinth-esque, Coen Brothers-esque kind of set of, of characters, we wouldn't even be here talking about this. We wouldn't even know about this story. And so this had been in our radar since about 2017 when the first story about Jerry Falwell, the president, his wife, Becky, the first lady of Liberty, the largest Christian university in the world, were owners of this $4.5 million uh, piece of, of, of commercial real estate blocks away from our office that housed a liquor store, very much against 
<laughs> the the strict, uh, some would say puritanical liberty way code of conduct for students and faculty because there's no drinking. Then it housed what uh, Politico described as a, quote, gay-friendly flop house, end quote. This youth hostel where kind of anything goes also very much not in keeping mm. with the, the spirit or, or the, the letter of Liberty University's rules, which don't allow for same-sex couples, which don't allow for sex outside the sanctity of marriage. Uh, like I said, no drinking, no cohabitating, no cursing, no R-rated movies, no music with, with profane language, really a hip-hop ban. And descriptions of, you hear from students, uh, for Netflix and chill, or as I now have to call it, Hulu and chill, you had female students in their dorm rooms watching a movie and their boyfriends outside on the lawn in a, like a lawn chair watching through the window, uh, you know, and, and cause they're not, that's a, romance. Yeah, so Liberty style. So we, it was, it was a funny, ironic story. Um, but when, when shit really got out of hand was when Aaron Rostin now at Reuters, then at Buzzfeed wrote an even more sensational follow-up. It's just when he revealed that there was this litigation that had been filed and that the partner of the Falwells in this property is Giancarlo Granda, who, according to the public records in this court filing, was a former pool attendant that the Falwells met at the Fountain Blue Hotel while he was working and serving them. Uh, I mean, serving them like drinks and food and towels and servicing them sir yes both really and who becky had given a very good trip advisor review by the way too (laughs) uh after we had that in the documentary uh, he was a very prolific trip advisor reviewer uh and so anyway long story even longer we were just we were like oh well of course there's more to this onion to peel because how did this thrupling this business thrupling if you will uh, consummate and and get started here. So, really, what happened was the blogosphere and the Twitterverse took over and started to impose all kinds of scenarios, uh, which turned out to be not far from the truth in the end. And you just felt like you know because this was eight blocks from from you, you just were called uh, that. That was sort of like a mandate from the <laughs> heavens that you do do a documentary on this. Well, in the summer of 2020, June of 2020. An email came in over the transom, which means they went to our website, our company website, rackandtour.com, clicked contact us, and it landed in one of those info at, you know, uh, (laughs) inboxes that my producing partner, Alfred Spellman, will occasionally check to see if there's anything interesting going on. And the subject was Pool Boy. And the author of the the email was Giancarlo Granda. I didn't need to read Pool Boy. I knew who Giancarlo Granda was. Uh, He was a Miami guy you know and and so i opened it and it was giancarlo asking if i would be interested in making a documentary and telling his story which of course we were pool boy came to you good for giancarlo i want to show one of the early parts you kind of uh, alluded to this after the infamous trip advisor review you know this could have just been a little one night stand right could have been a little one night moment for the falwells and Giancarlo and just something to think about in their memory box in the spank bank. But they, they decided to push forward. And at the, one of the things that shocked me the most about this was, uh, was in this next uh, clip. So Sebastian, will you play the email from Jerry? And so I, I got an email on March 22nd, and it actually came from Jerry. It was a picture of us that we took at the Fauna Blue Hotel. It was a picture with me and Becky, and then one with Jerry. He sent the email saying, Becky wanted me to send this to you. Immediately, 
I was like, who? And she's like, oh, Jerry Falwell. She, she recognized the name. She's like, isn't that like the famous uh, pastor or preacher? Wait a minute, hold on. This cannot be the same people that I'm thinking about right now. Giancarlo, God love him, didn't know who Jerry Falwell was, but his sister, uh, he sent it from like Jerry at jerryfalwell.org <laughs> or something. Like, what? He didn't create a fake Gmail for his for his little love life? What was the deal with that? I mean, you saw the actual email, I guess. Oh, yeah, and, and the email attached to it was a photo that they had taken – uh, outside their suite, well, on the terrace of their suite at the Tresor Tower at the Fountain Blue. Beautiful, beautiful uh, suite. And one of the pictures was Giancarlo and Becky, and the other one was Jerry and Giancarlo to memorialize their their memorable trip to Miami Beach. And the morning after, he, he hooked up again with them the morning after that, that first night to see them off, if you will. And so mm. that really began, according to Giancarlo, a seven-year uh, cuckold threesome with uh, Jerry and Becky and Giancarlo that then evolved into this business uh, partnership as well, that then evolved into Giancarlo being treated as a member of their family, as another sibling to their two sons and, and young daughter. And Giancarlo attended both of their sons' weddings as a guest of the Falwells. Uh, at one of them, Giancarlo recounts Jerry and Becky staying in the presidential suite at the Greenbrier, and he would go up at their son's wedding and have sex with with Becky. JVL, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, just like every just like every daughter dreams it'll be, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, the entire thing is amazing. Out of curiosity, are there any things that stick out to you, having lived this story now, as just being too bonkers to believe. Like, you know, like for me, it's a tiny detail. And it's that the first time that he bangs her, they go to the Days Inn. They leave the Fountain Blue to go to the Days Inn. And so these high rollers are just like, yeah, we'll, we'll go to the Days Inn down the street. And it's so, per it's such a perfect detail. But also, is the, as you say, if this was, you know, if this had been in a novel, we would have thought, oh man, that is a... That's a great detail. Uh, what what knocked your socks off as you were getting into this? Yeah, well, in this documentary, a lot of things stick out, JBL. A lot of things. So to speak. Of, yeah. So I just want to apologize to my mother right now. Uh, please, you can stop listening now, Mom. <laughs> I, it's just going to get worse from here. Anyway, I'm sorry. Billy, go ahead. Don't worry, Tim. She's not listening. Um, <laughs> right. So, so <laughs> my, my mother never listens to my podcast either. It's fine. So, <laughs> um, but my mother listens to your podcast. So, <laughs> hey, hey, Mrs. Corbin. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> she, she's in the corner right now, actually. Oh no. <laughs> so, um, things that stuck out to me in this, like, yes, you happened on a on, on a really delightful detail because the Falwells were actually, they were all concerned. The Falwells were concerned because their adult children were staying in rooms also at the Fountain Blue Hotel. And Giancarlo was a little concerned basically coming to his workplace after hours and going up to a room. He was concerned about, you know, seeing management or coworkers. And so I think it was kind of a, a even though the Falwells came up with the idea, he certainly was, was, was down for the cause, which is a few blocks south of the Fountain Blue on Collins Avenue. There used to be, it's now something else, but it was a Days in Hotel. And so they definitely downgraded uh, <laughs> from, from, the, from the fabulous Fountain Blue Resort to the Days in. 
Uh, but I think, you know, it was kind of like, it was certainly good enough to suit their purposes. In fact, they had told, uh, Becky told Giancarlo that night, he recounts in the documentary that an earlier evening, they had gone to a swingers club called Miami Velvet, a club made famous by Roger Stone, who was a, a, a fan and member and frequenter of Miami Velvet. Um, he, in fact, conducted interviews at various times in his life and career in Miami Velvet with journalists be- because Miami. And mm. so um, they that was not their scene, though. It was too public. They were looking for a more private arrangement like the one that they had had you know, fashioned with, uh, with Giancarlo. But to me, I, I mean, I was trying to think of something else because for me, the, the biggest surprise is a spoiler, you know, way, way at the end of the documentary. So I, I'll, I'll try to, to not ruin anything is to just say that when we talked to Giancarlo, we didn't just take his word for it. This was heavily, heavily vetted. We required as much corroboration as he could provide. And certainly things didn't make the final cut um, that otherwise would have because we were not satisfied or or our attorneys were not satisfied with the level of corroboration. Um, and so we had copious amounts of text messages. I mean, you know, many multitudes of what you see, uh, you know, excerpted in the dock, video, emails, photographs, uh, many of which are in the dock. But there was a piece of video evidence that comes not only late in the documentary, but very late in their relationship that is just really revealing and really surprising. And even though we're only, we only used a very, very tiny sample of it, it is much more extensive in, in real life, let's say, uh, and, and graphic. What it reveals at that late stage of the relationship was pretty stunning to me and how it corroborates not just what was going on then, but what had gone on for the previous seven years. So, and for that, we'll need to get the Hulu Plus Premium Edition to get access to the director's <laughs> cut in six months, yeah, right? I, it's, it, I can yeah. assure you, it's not a, not going to be on Disney Plus. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm not interested in this as a homosexual, but I think that uh, whatever the material was that Tom Arnold saw uh, should really be in the Hulu Plus 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 uh, edition because Tom discusses uh some extensive videos of becky that i guess he reviewed as part of his just as part of some work that he was doing obviously nothing nothing extracurricular as peculiar as your preface was to that to that comment uh I, I, can we can we just pause for a moment and relish in the absurdity that we're even talking about tom arnold right now can we just can we just take a moment when t- I stood up from my chair when Tom Arnold appeared in the documentary. I was like, yes, now we're getting to somewhere. Billy, all of these things intersect, though. That, that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about this story, right? So we have Michael Cohen. We have Tom Arnold, formerly The Apprentice. We have Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, and and then we we actually wind up with Mark Ebner, who, who is Giancarlo's co-author for his book version of this, who is Andrew Breitbart's writing partner. And it's, you know, it's like the entire MAGA world. Let me tell you something about Mark Ebner. It's, a, it's an amazing, <laughs> amazing trip, confluence of, of events. I think people. very often it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty trite metaphor at this point, uh, peeling the onion, right? The layers of the – but this really, really, really is that. And uh, Todd Shulman, our, our executive producer, works with Adam McKay at uh, Hyper Object. Uh, he likens uh, our work or the best of our work uh, anyway, I hope this ranks among it uh, as a Trojan horse where, you know, it, it, we kind of tempt the audience with the candy and then we sort of sneak some broccoli 
uh, in there on you. And so um, obviously, I think you get some of the titillating details on this sex scandal, certainly. But also, I think I, I hope, you know, there's a macro story in addition to that micro, you know, I, I always liken cocaine cowboys, for example, to a a mosaic, right? All of these people that we interview are individual tiles. And when you zoom out, there's the macro, there's this, the skyline of the city of Miami. And there's this bigger story that we're telling about how narco dollars, you know, essentially built on a major American city or provided the foundation for it anyway. And so I hope that we're doing something similar here where you walk away going, oh shit, I might've learned something from, <laughs> from the sex scandal documentary that I just watched. I learned something. I want to get to the broccoli, but when I have one more question about something you mentioned first that I just, I couldn't get past. And I guess it doesn't seem like the Falwells were that cooperative with the documentary. I guess uh, it's hard to say, but uh, maybe you get a sense for it. The kids thing, I mean, the, the wedding, the Greenbrier story is titillating and, and obscene, but it's also like, how did the kids not know? I, I, I just don't understand. They have multiple adult children. Yeah. I, like this, Giancarlo is like around all the time now. He gets invited to the house. He's going to the wedding. Um, you know, Michael Cohen, who I want to get to next, sniffs this thing out in about one minute, it seems like. And yet the kids have this guy living in their home. Yeah. Like, what do you have a sense? Does Giancarlo talk to you about that? Like about the, his relationship with the kids and how that. The first point that Giancarlo made, which I found very compelling, is that they were the first family uh, in the, of this college campus community of which they lived in, you know, adjacent to it, not on the campus, but in Lynchburg, Virginia. And invited, they had a you know very large kind of ranch home on a lake with different houses, uh, at least one if not more Confederate cemeteries on the property. And they would invite the campus community to the lake, to their home. So Giancarlo said it wasn't entirely unusual for them to have college age you know men and women around them, and that was kind of that was part of the the camouflage, if you will, and the cover. Uh, also, they were in business together. He was our friend from the Fountain Blue is how they introduced him to Donald Trump and Michael Cohen in the story we'll get to. And they were, they were in fact, business partners in this LLC, in this major uh, real estate transaction down in Miami Beach. It had the added benefit of being true. And one of the partners in the LLC was Jerry Falwell III, Trey, the eldest son of Jerry and Becky. So they did enmesh him into the family and create this gray area where he was like another, you know, another son, uh, you know, a third son to us and, and a sibling to, to our uh, children. But he told us a story that did not make the final cut. So you get a bit of a deleted scene here at one of the son's weddings after the reception in a lobby bar where a great many of the guests had kind of retreated to for the, uh, not well, after the after party, it's the hotel lobby, right? So they're in the hotel lobby bar. There's like a karaoke party going. I think that, I don't think we can do that reference anymore, Billy. I, I'm sorry. I, I think that that's canceled, uh, R. Kelly quotes. But yeah. I, I feel like that's been oft requoted, though, enough that we can, that, you know, we can get, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the ignition. Okay. And I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> so, at, the, at the after party. There's this karaoke party and... Giancarlo describes a scene in which Becky is hanging off of him, like qu quite openly at this party. And he's, he, he got scared. He's like, do people know, is this like, am I the, the only one who's trying to pretend this isn't happening? And she was just, you know, the social lubrication had obviously taken hold and he was a little embarrassed by it. So I think it does, it does lead to your question of like, who knew what, 
and when, but they didn't talk about it with the kids. And whether or not they suspected anything, I just don't know. Part of my my thesis is that Jerry never gets brought down, except that everybody at Liberty hates him. And that he's basically Kim Jong-un, right? He's the idiot son <laughs> of a guy who was kind of shrewd. And he is, you know, there's, there's a quote in one of the big Politico pieces about this where they said, you know, Liberty is not a school. It's a hedge fund that buys real estate using, uh, you know, investment dollars from parents. And, you know, they just convince basically Fox watchers and OAN watchers that, you know, college is terrible. Uh, send your kids here. And then they use the tuition dollars to just buy shopping centers and stuff like that. And Falwell does seem for a very long time, it's not like things just went off the rails over the last five years, for almost the entire time, seems absolutely hated by everybody, even maybe his own brother. And so he has no natural allies there. But but it's the same omerta, right? So everybody at Liberty knew what Jerry was doing business-wise, and just like nobody said anything about it because he would just, you know, the, the place was a dictatorship and nobody had tenure. The kids aren't saying anything because they're getting daddy's money. Right. And yeah. so I wonder if in the family it was the same way, the same sort of thing. Like, you know, look, everybody know everybody knows the score, but you don't uh, you don't rock the boat. Oh, yeah. The, the board of trustees, uh, you know, Jerry didn't answer to the board. The board answered to him. I mean, it was like Goldfinger yes. style. I mean, you if you even questioned him, he pressed the button and the trap door under your chair would open and you'd fall. Yeah. You fold right into the trash heap. It didn't matter how generous you had been, how long you had been involved with the with the institution. You were done the moment you crossed Jerry. And all of his immediate family was employed by the university. His children, their spouses, Becky, certainly his brother, you know, but certainly all of his immediate family. There were certain there were cousins and um and and aunts and uncles as well. Um, and I will say this that his children were collateral damage in this because they were all shit canned. I mean, Jerry Falwell III was the you know, presumptive heir to the throne, just like Jerry Jr. had been, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, he certainly was not the, re- the religious uh, leader that his father was. Right. It was his younger brother, Jonathan, who in fact took over Thomas Road Baptist Church, the religious side of the business, whereas uh, Jerry Jr. took over the, the presidency of the, of the business side of the business or the education side of the business and helped build that institution into a multi-billion dollar endowment, $100 million in capital you know, campaigns and, and improvements and construction to the campus. He made a lot of people, including himself, very rich in and around Lynchburg. Uh, w- w- and he was, to be fair, by training and trade, a real estate attorney. So he turned into that that curve and, and as a result, made the campus beautiful uh, and, and state of the art. And of course, made some people, at least, a lot of money. But yeah, I think probably, I mean, the kids might be disappointed that their financial future and security is not, is no longer a foregone conclusion as it had been. The one little factoid that makes you think that the kids actually didn't know and that they, this is these are some sheltered kids, um, which was I think my favorite little factoid in the in the documentary was that that their mother was missing so often on vacations. They made T-shirts that said "Where's Becky," <laughs> and they wore these T-shirts. So. Anyway, that leads one to believe that maybe they weren't in on the joke. Like if they really knew their mom was getting banged by their buddy Giancarlo, I don't know that they would have made tea. That that would that would I guess be another layer of debauched uh, family relationships if they if they made T-shirts just to troll her over her love life. I think that seems unlikely, but who knows? We tried to find 
like a photo of, of, of them wearing the shirts or to know what the design looked like. We were unable to, uh, we're unable to find it, but that factoid, uh, that Giancarlo shared with us in his interview was corroborated by the Falwells in an interview that they gave. In fact, they joked about those shirts that they had, had made. Um, okay. One guy that did sniff it out was Michael Cohen. I want to get into the politics of this for the last little bit. Uh, Sebastian, can you play the clip? Michael Cohen approached me and Donald Trump is going to run for president and they want my endorsement. I didn't take it seriously. I'm like, you can't be serious, right? Like, it's probably for ratings. There's no way he's actually running. He's like, no, no, he really wants to run. And uh, we believe that he can actually win. If Jerry was going to get more involved with politicians, just like how his dad did, he had to ensure that all loose ends were done. The boss. I talked to the boss, and the boss told me that I talked to the Falwells, and the boss. Sorry, I'm sorry. So you, so you learn pretty quickly that Michael Cohen sniffs this relationship out. That as somebody who's been part of some some shoddy business deals, you know, all of a sudden he's like, "So these two went into business at the Fountain Below with the pool boy." I don't, I don't know. And Michael Cohen sniffed <laughs> a rat very quickly, and and was able to gather, I guess, some pretty incriminating material um that he may or may not have shared with tom arnold um and, and but, but the 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 interesting part of this to me is not just that cohen sniffed it out you know this thing that was secret for seven years so quickly but also that the doc pretty strongly implies that 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 this was used as leverage to get falwell to endorse trump in the in the in the primary like what what's your sense of that well michael cohen now and and the falwells always deny that there was any quid pro quo here. But Michael Cohen told a slightly different story in his book. Um, and that was during a time when, of course, he was, you know, had been excommunicated from Trump world and the Falwells were still very much within it. Now that they're all pariahs, I think, I suspect that they have re-met again. They've made that, you know, that friendship connection again. And so he's, a, he kind of, pulls his punches a little bit more now when it comes to this story. Uh, but I will say that first and foremost, Michael Cohen was known as the fixer because he fixed shit. I mean, he, you know, he earned that, that title. Um, it was, you know, we, we, we think of him now as sort of a character or a caricature, but he, that was his legitimate role in the Trump organization. And he went everywhere with Trump, including to Liberty university in 2012 for this event where Giancarlo was also in the green room, accompanied them on the private tour that Trump got from the Falwells. And, and Giancarlo describes how Michael Cohen looked at him sideways, our friend from the fountain blue, who is this 20 year old kid who's not a student at Liberty? Like what, how do they know this guy? What is he doing here for crying out loud? Um, and that was kind of his, right? That was his sixth sense. That was his job was to identify people, their weakness, the, to borrow a term, compromise, if you will, and, and be able to have that, not for his advantage, but for the boss. And so he, he, he recounts in his book that when Jerry and Becky, because they maintain this relationship from 2012, uh, you know, that was the other thing too, like Michael Cohen, when he thought there were useful relationships and connections for the boss, he would maintain that friendship. You know, you didn't have, you know, Donald, you know, texting Jerry and Becky. You had Michael kind of keeping that ball in the air in the event that that would become useful at some point. And what, it actually became useful for Jerry and Becky first because when they got involved in this real estate transaction in Miami and they, these friends of Giancarlo who helped them 
in this real estate transaction came forward and said, hey, we didn't get our you know, the piece of the action that we were promised. They were claiming that they knew the truth about this relationship between Jerry and Becky and Giancarlo, and that they had photographs, incriminating photographs that could help prove their case. And if they don't want them to file a lawsuit making this dispute and these allegations public, and thus compromising, I mean, their their lives and reputations, they would settle this matter forthwith. And so Jerry freaked out, called Michael Cohen and said, hey, can you help us out? Michael Cohen made some calls and to his credit and to his claim as a fixer, it went away for a while. He made this conflict disappear. The pictures never saw the light of day. But then, of course, Michael Cohen was in possession of these photos. And he did, in fact, show at least one, if Mm. not more of them, to Tom Arnold, because that's how weird this story uh, gets. Yeah, there's two ways in which the Falwells are kind of, you know, somewhat one of the things that are responsible for our dystopian MAGA life right, that we live in right now. One is this, like this butterfly effect of, of Michael Cohen having this leverage, maybe a quid pro quo, maybe not. But the other thing you talked about is that like Trump really is was appealing to Jerry because he's kind of a televangelist. I, I thought that was an interesting kind of observation, right? Like there is, you know, on one level, you're like, oh, Trump is so unchristian. Like what was the appeal there? On the other hand, it's kind of like, Trump and the televangelists have a lot in common, actually. But Jerry was drawn to that. And Jerry was a real estate magnate. You know, Jerry fashioned himself, um, you know, a bit of a, of a Donald Trump. And so there was an, an organic kinship there. And in fact, Jerry Jr. will tell you that he was going to endorse Trump regardless or irregardless, as we say in Miami, because we're irreliterate, though, though I use it ironically. But it would have been much more organic for Jerry to endorse in that primary Ted Cruz who was, of course, not only an evangelical Christian, but his father is a pastor. Ted Cruz, in fact, announced his his presidential uh, run at Liberty University at a convocation there. He thought he had it that endorsement in the bag. And it was Jerry Jr., the first evangelical leader to endorse a twice-divorced liberal Democrat playboy from New York City, of all places, might as well be Sodom and Gomorrah. And a man with five children from three different women as their candidate, like the last guy you would you would think. And that kicked the door open. I mean, that was the first domino, really, that fell, that made Donald Trump the candidate of the evangelicals, a voting bloc who have helped elect every Republican president since uh, Ronald Reagan. And all while he and his supporters complained that anybody who didn't support Trump was a cuck. That's the, the 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 best part of all of this, right? It's the, the you know projection is the sincerest form of Trumpism, right. you know. But this is this actually really hits one of Trump's really keen powers is sensing weakness, right? And so the evangelicals were going to be a tough nut for him to crack. And so what you do is, you know, what Trump did was he zoomed in on the weakest guy he could find and turned him. And the cuckest, right? The cuckest. A guy who's so submissive that the first time his wife is banging another dude, when he goes over to get closer, Giancarlo says to him, hey, step off, bro. And and Jerry's like, oh, sorry, sorry. Right, you know, that's how submissive he is. Yes, sir. And anyway, but, but the genius of Trump is that he did understand that if you can move a couple evangelicals, then the pressure on everybody else to throw in just ratchets up further and further and further. And eventually, it'll be the Russell Moores who get kicked out of the movement for not supporting him, right? They, you know, they will be the ones who pay the price, not him. 
Donald Trump. And so that's like it's a, a piece of animal cunning that he has. Every accusation is a confession, you know? So when you hear cuck, when you hear sheep, I mean, in the church, they are called a flock for a reason. Um, it is a very powerful echo chamber. And when you get that endorsement, when you get that, like, whatever you thought you knew about Trump, that he's a libtard, that he's a, an abortionist, that he's a Democrat, it suddenly goes out the window because this person of power, and that's the thing about Jerry, despite the fact that he wants to play it off that, well, I'm not the, you know, the, I don't have the religiosity of my father, I'm not a, a Christian leader. He certainly, he certainly relished in the power of the pulpit he enjoyed that discrepancy that like okay i don't i'm not a real christian but i'll tell all these christians what to and i think that's important to note here as well as this documentary is not about christians and christianity this is about people who exploit christians and christianity for power and profit and that's the the real disconnect here is this idea of this holier than thou hypocrisy i don't care about what they're into sexually i'm from miami God bless, like, that's the point of Miami. Like, come down, come down here and live your best life. I mean, if you want to, I mean, come down here, party. This is actually, uh, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you about this really quick. Do you think that the Falwells, part of the reason they felt free there was in Miami? Because I was watching this and I'm like, you know, how many people at the Fountain Blue really, really know what's happening at Liberty, right? Like, in some ways, it might have felt a little bit like they were, they were safer there because of the culture. They felt anonymous there in New York, too. And, 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 you know, I always say um, that uh, Los Angeles is where you go when you want to be somebody. New York is where you go when you are somebody. And Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else. It's just, it's, it's always been a sunny place for shady people. It's always been that Vegas-esque. What happens in Miami stays in Miami. They came down here. They lived their best life. God bless them. I think the, the rub there, yeah, no pun intended, is, is of course is of course this holier-than-thou hypocrisy. I think we've seen how dangerous it is when leaders, be it in academia, politics, uh, 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 corporate America, when, when the philosophy is do as I say, not as I do. The rules, the laws, they don't apply to me, they apply to everyone else. That gets incredibly dangerous. The idea that we should put uh, women in prison for having abortions, but the men who finance them should go to the United States Senate. There is certainly some disconnect between the flock and the leadership. And to that end, you know, the people of Liberty University, I think, were collateral damage here. If all of this unspooled today, do you think Falwell still gets driven out of Liberty? Because my sense is that that world has basically now fully accommodated themselves to the idea of hypocrisy in the service of power. And where liberty, I mean, it took, God knows, a a ton of people and like high up people within, you know, wasn't the AP that drove Fall out of liberty. It was the trustees and other Christians there. I don't know that that movement would, would be there today. What do you think? I think that Jerry Falwell was one of those dominoes that helped us get to here, meaning his downfall and that scandal. So without it, we might have skipped a step in terms of of this moment in history. But I will say two things about that. First of which is that, as I said, the Liberty kind of campus community, students and and faculty who were collateral damage here in terms of you know diminishing the value of their degree, diminishing the reputation of the institution, there are people who are pure of heart there, who are true believers in the Gospels and in the mission of that university. And so I think that Jerry Falwell Jr. failed them. And I think he failed them then, and I think he would have failed them now. So I think this would have been the inevitable outcome of that. That said, we live in a time 
we are old enough to appreciate that. I don't know everybody listening will be, but where we can turn on the TV right now and watch Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker preaching on television. That is how I never thought I would, I would live long enough to see that day. So he is very much from a culture of forgiveness and of second and third acts. And so I would not be surprised that this was not the last that we saw of Jerry and Becky. Me neither. I do. In the spirit of holier than thou hypocrisy, I need to come clean about something. This has brought up, uh, this documentary brought up a memory that I, that I had tucked away, um, that as a closeted homosexual in, uh, Virginia, in Lynchburg, in, I don't know, the early aughts, uh, I was at a bar, uh, with some Liberty kids, including a young woman. And we drove back to the Liberty campus uh, at which point I thought we were going to have like an after party, but I didn't, I didn't really realize the rules of the Liberty way at the time. And I was informed on the drive back about all the limitations about what one could do, you know, go back to your dorm and hang out. Can't even play a board game in the same room as her. She, you could, I could feel her tension in the car and we get there and I get a very heavy makeout very wet, heavy makeout, followed by kind of like looking around the window, followed by getting out of the car and being like, let's still keep in touch. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I was like, we've got a lot of problems in this situation. Actually, it's like your dorm room. I'm dealing with my sexuality. I don't know if we should keep in touch. So I want to apologize to that young woman for leading her on. But I, I do feel like that experience, just that one hour, gave me an insight into just like, it is bullshit, right? It is gross. Like the culture... You know, and I think it has negative ramifications. As funny as that story is, on the on the on the mental health of people who are dealing with this, who are living on campus, struggling to either deal with their sexuality, dealing with sexual abuse in certain cases, or harassment. You know, while these assholes are down there cucking around at the fountain blue, and that <coughs> is bullshit. And and I do feel bad for those kids on that front. And in addition to the gen, the the you know kids who believe this stuff genuinely. I mean, they are being punished. Uh, they're being fined. There are monetary fines under the yeah. code of student conduct. So your, your economic stability is being, is at risk. Your, you know, there's suspension, expulsion, your academic and future prospects are put at risk as a result of the very behavior that Jerry and Becky are. I mean, they, they, they looked at the, uh, at the 10 commandments as like uh, a bucket list as like, they're like, they're like, they're like, they're, they're like 10 commandments, 10 commandments are like hashtag goals. You know, they're like, let's cross, let's, yeah. let's cross these things off one after the other. And in, in an odd way, they even got to the biggie. Uh, thou shalt not kill on January 6th. So they made it, they made it through, they, they made it through that list. All right. Well, on that note, Billy, final question. Is the U back? They, they have recruited the number one cornerback in the country. They stole him from Florida, which I love as an LSU Tiger fan. Can the U be back? We, we, are, we are entering, uh, I think, our, what is it, our third consecutive rebuilding decade. Uh, but yes, I, I think if anybody can do it, Mario Cristobal can uh and i i believe in cristobal and i'm look i'm looking into my cristobal right now and i see i see the future of the canes uh and i i i trust the system i trust the process awesome i love that i loved that ken dorsey team one of my favorite non-lsu teams of all time maybe my favorite uh thank you so billy this has been so awesome let's do it again it's been a good show pretty long show jvl any final thoughts thank god sarah wasn't here Thank God Sarah wasn't here. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Next Level Podcast on the Bulwark, Billy. We'll talk to you soon. Good night and good cup. See you, man. (laughs) 